Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, on location, Malibu, California, beautiful house on Broad Beach. And for those of you who don't know anything about Broad Beach, the wealthiest area of California, probably, this stretch of land here where people like Lady Gaga and Adele and Adam Sandler, I believe, as well, were looking out at the ocean at the two cats on the balcony who have been stuffed out there because our producer is highly allergic and he didn't want to sneeze during my intro. We walked in, there were 35 crosses on the wall. I thought I was interviewing somebody who actually was part Jewish, but apparently because Jesus was a Jew, it's acceptable to nail 35 crosses on the hallway as you walk into the place. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this crazy podcast as I stare at different Buddhas and shells and I'm looking across at Catherine Oxenberg and I can tell you something one of the most beautiful women in the world. When I look at her, I think of the story that I want to tell you guys. I remember when I merged my company with a company called New Wave Entertainment, had a great run there for eight years. And my first week there, I was kind of uncomfortable because I'd only worked on my own. And I was there late at night one night, and I was feeling a little anxious. And I remember taking a deep breath, and I heard crying didn't think anything of it then I heard it again and I went out to walk around this huge 40,000 square foot facility and I found a woman crying in an editing bay her name was Shari Jacoby and she was a producer at this company I said is everything okay she said I've been working on this project for so long and I just feel like I can't get it the way 
I want it to be, and I know there's something special here. I asked her, do you mind if I sit down and look at it? And she said, no, not at all. And she proceeded to show me a reality sizzle reel with Catherine Oxenberg and Casper Van Dien and their blended family. And there was something so special there. And when I saw Catherine on the screen, I felt like I knew her. I felt so calm and so safe and my anxiety about being in this huge building with all these employees and all these people that I'd be working with it all went away after I saw her on film and after it finished I said to Shari I said listen if you'll let me I'd love to work with you on editing this and I'd love to pitch it to some networks. I think I know some people who will want to buy it. I set up a meeting at Lifetime. I rarely get to be in a situation, and most people in this business rarely get to be in any kind of situation where you're in a room. After they see the reel, they say, don't take any more pitch meetings. We want this show. And at that moment, I felt the same feeling that I felt when I first saw Catherine Oxenberg for the first time. I felt like, my God, I'm not the only one who feels this way, this feeling of comfort and happiness. It was a great feeling for me as an executive because the owner of the company the next day put this incredible surprise party together for all the staff where we're in the kitchen and he celebrated the first television show that they'd ever sold like that at the company and I had only been there a few months and as I sit across from Catherine I think to myself a few different things number one if you're at a company and you feel anxious and you don't know where you fit in or how you're gonna fit in find people at the company that might be feeling a little anxious too and work with them together with the passion you know you have for things and if you find that project that you're passionate about like we did it launches you to another level I mean no one knew what I could do at that company I had to prove myself just like everybody else and in a span of three months I did and on the other side for the artist like Catherine Oxenberg if you can figure out a way to exude such presence on the screen if you can figure out a way to make such a difference just by walking into a frame of footage or in any job walking in any room and making a difference like she made for me and she made for the people of lifetime i can't imagine why you wouldn't have a chance at the kind of career that katherine oxenberg has here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. All right. Excited. I'm here across from one of the most extraordinary women in the world. 
and I'm going to introduce her. And afterwards, my producer, I promise, is going to wake her up and it's all going to be good. Catherine Oxenberg is an award-winning actress best known for her performance as Amanda Carrington on the 80s primetime soap opera Dynasty. An Ivy League-educated model, performer, and activist, Oxenberg is the daughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia, making her the 1375th person in line for the British throne. Oxenberg was born in New York City but grew up in London, the eldest daughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia and her first husband, Howard Oxenberg, a Jewish dress manufacturer. She was educated at St. Paul's School and deferred her first year at Harvard to pursue acting and modeling. She later transferred to Columbia University and made her acting debut in the 1982 made-for-television movie The Royal, Romance of Charles and Diana, in which she played Diana, Princess of Wales. In 84, she joined the hit ABC primetime soap opera Dynasty, then at its height of popularity, in the role of Amanda Carrington. She was the guest host on Saturday Night Live in 86, making history as the first descendant of royal family to ever host SNL. Oxenberg starred as Princess Elisa in the 87 television film Roman Holiday. She also appeared in The Lair of the White Worm in 88 and reprised the role of Diana in the TV film Charles and Diana Unhappily Ever After. From 93 to 94, she starred in the short-lived series Acapulco Heat, and in 2005, Oxenberg and then-husband Casper Van Dien appeared in their own reality series that I talked about called I Married a Princess, which aired on Lifetime during the 2006-2007 season. Oxenberg and her husband co-starred in the American drama series Watch Over Me on my network TV as well. Once named by Harper's Bazaar as one of America's 10 most beautiful women, Oxenberg is a strong advocate for women's issues, having recently starred in Sexology, a documentary which analyzes the female orgasm in our modern post-feminist society. Oxenberg is also an advocate of abused and neglected children, and as a child help celebrity ambassador Catherine has spoken to the Senate about the dangerous repercussions of child abuse in our world. Please welcome ladies and gentlemen, what an honor my guest today, Catherine Oxenberg. Barry, thank you. That was the most complimentary introduction and I didn't know that whole story about new wave and that's really magical so thank you for sharing that and reminding me except the only thing that i'm concerned about is people are going to think i'm a, re a religious zealot because of <laughs> the quantities i just want to clarify i'm renting this beautiful house it came with actually 33 crosses and i didn't have the heart to take them down so God. there you have it and i am partial to religious art but i've never i would never personally perhaps fill an entire wall with crucifixes it seemed kind of suiting because I was um, in the middle of a divorce and so it felt representative of this period of my life that's sort of you know resurrectory if that's a word <laughs> it is now <laughs> I have so many things to ask you the first thing I have to ask you is very odd all through your life people always said you're beautiful and I always wonder to myself how do people decide what's beautiful and how did you know that you were associated with that well 
this is a huge topic and I don't even know like how to touch on it in a meaningful way because first of all beauty is subjective but there's some basic things like you think of facial symmetry you think of like a basic sort of as an as an artist you think of basic like facial structure that that appeals to people but I I think that the the concept of beauty is when you see somebody or something that you consider beautiful it touches you in a certain way it touches you at a soul level when I look at a sunset um, or to be quite honest anything in nature or or a beautiful woman or you know or like an exquisite child there there is like an the way that it affects me and for every individual it's going to be different is this kind of something about the perfection of life it 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 um i don't know it's like it touches upon an aspect of divinity in a strange way do you know what i mean i mean it's hard to explain and again what is beautiful to you is might not be beautiful to me so it's how it how that image or person what it evokes in like it's an internal kind of uh, experience um so again this is like deeply philosophical for me there was a little bit of a complication which was i my dad was hypercritical and his way of protecting me through life was always to warn me of every way that i would fail so i remember telling him when i was a teenager that i wanted to model and he said well you can only model if you're beautiful from every angle and you're not pretty enough and you're not tall enough so that had an impact on me so I don't know if I ever felt beautiful and I think part of me evolving myself and maturing into becoming a woman is this journey into what it means to feel beautiful rather than to appear beautiful to somebody else so it's more of an internal experience of beauty and then doing a whole kind of um, exploration on we're so obsessed with beauty in our culture but youth and beauty so as women age there's this ageism that goes on that we are not seen as beautiful anymore and so then I started to explore well, what is this what happens to a woman it's this this journey from beauty to radiance and what does that mean so how do you develop radiance and and then how do we evolve the culture to value radiance in a woman versus just the beauty of an estrogen rich baby face um, which is going to always be beautiful but so that also has been very an, an interesting journey for me as a woman especially in the business that I you know grew up in you're telling me that you never in your life felt beautiful until recently for the first time in my life, I, f I felt completely beautiful at the age of 51 because I started to have these experiences. And when I experienced like my body as feeling so full of love, then I, I, I for the first time in my life, I went, oh my God, I am beautiful. But, but it was how I felt. It was a visceral tangible experience of beauty not me looking in the mirror and seeing you know whether my eyeliner was put on well or that you know I my complexion was had nothing to do with an external beauty it had it was completely about 
my my internal my my like what my body was going through and in that moment I felt the perfection of my own feminine beauty which was an experience I'd never had before can you share as much as possible the moment that it happened that you felt that you loved yourself I um had probably felt now I want to delve into the sexuality aspect kind of sexually shut down I always felt like there had to be more to sex because um just I felt like I was missing out on some great experience that maybe everybody was experiencing except for me and I remember going back and telling my husband if I don't get to experience that as a woman now I might as well be dead like if I don't get to experience my full potential as a woman I'm wasting my time on this planet I just hit the wall as a guy yes <laughs> when a woman sits down and tells you yes <laughs> that if I don't experience what I meant to experience sexually as a man you feel like I just got out of the cold ocean water and no pill is going to help me come back from it well it's about to get worse because <laughs> I had just come back from meeting a woman who was having these extraordinary sexual experiences she had worked with a tantric master actually the same guy who worked with Sting and his his girlfriend Trudy or wife I'm not sure and she was describing this experience where she could be meditating in London and he would be meditating in Sri Lanka at the same time and she would be in full body orgasm for hours just by synchronizing their meditation and something in me when she said that recalibrated and went well she if she's capable of that so am I and I that's why I went home to Casper and I said I need to experience this I want to work with that guy and he said, well, before you go get fingered by some stranger, and I'll explain the process shortly, <laughs> please give me a chance. <laughs> and I went, okay, I'm giving you th three months. <laughs> so we st I started to correspond. But isn't that a lot of pressure with Casper? Yeah, but guys like goals. So <laughs> and I was 51, damn it. It's like suddenly I was acutely aware of my mortality. I don't know about that hitting 50, but... It's like the shit hits the fan and there's no more time to waste. So this guy in London started, sent us the cliff notes of how to do what is he calls a sacred spot massage, which you might more understand as it's an internal, it's a vaginal massage. And the point of it is it's a healing because apparently women, apparently most women are actually suffering from vaginal atrophy and vaginal numbness which most men and most women are not aware of and certainly I wasn't aware of that <laughs> so miraculously he did this massage to me and it was extremely uncomfortable so this guy in London you go to London no he sent me an email saying do this he had to massage me for me it was uncomfortable because i had a lot of numbness and i had a lot of like in internal tension I've, I've had three births so there's not one woman on the planet who's got some type of birth trauma um they don't they may not know it but it's definitely restricting their pl pleasure potential so at the end of this session um i started to have experiences that i didn't know were possible I presume you're naked on a bed or a massage table. No, we're on a bed, yes. <laughs> on a bed. And it just focuses on you from the belly button down to your cash and prizes. Yeah, or your vulva. You could actually, yeah, okay. instead of a cash. 
Russian fries. <laughs> yes. I'm using a Dame Cook line. Meat and two veg, except I don't have meat and two veg. <laughs> so he's doing his thing, and the first 30 minutes, you're in pain, nothing's happening. Yes, and my, I had to um, maintain eye contact with him, which was very hard, and breathe and make sound on the exhale so that was those were my instructions and he had to look for places that he could feel tension inside and massage them very gently until they released the whole massage which lasted an hour was uncomfortable from beginning to end so you finished the massage yes. and we weren't even really sure that we were finished but we did what we were with the healers he precisely said do not have sex after a healing session but we did have sex because i'm not one to follow rules necessarily and by that time why waste a good thing was it better than normal worse or exactly the same things started happening i didn't know were humanly possible all of a sudden i felt this like pins and needle but very pleasant pins and needles spreading throughout my my heart and my like spreading across my breasts and intensifying and then exploded into orgasm so I had my first what, what is called an extra genital orgasm, but he wasn't even touching my breast and I wasn't touching my breast. So it was like a spontaneous, it's a spot. Basically orgasm is a spontaneous redistribution of energy. And in a woman, it can happen at any place in her body. So we put all this onus on the genitals, but, but a, whole, a, a woman's entire body is designed for orgasm. It's just that she doesn't know. Most women don't know. And then the whole purpose of this journey is to release this orgasmic energy from the genitals so that you can experience orgasm as a whole body phenomenon, which is why a woman will start to feel really beautiful because you have this incredible energy flowing through her whole body. And then this is, you know, this is intimate that I mean that I'm what I'm explaining. But at the same time, I, um, I, I started to ejaculate but I couldn't feel it. And he was like, I think you just ejaculated. But I was so disconnected, the top half and the bottom half. I don't half. think he said it that way. He did. He said, I think you just ejaculated all over me. So it's like, but the reason that I talk about ejaculation and I'm willing to appear foolish and talk about things that I don't really want to talk about in public is because the process of becoming sexually activated for a woman is awakening her ejaculatory reflex. And both men and women have two separate reflexes, orgasm and ejaculation. And for men, the purpose is to separate those two reflexes so that he can enjoy multiple non-ejaculatory orgasms. And for women, it's to bring those two reflexes together. So at first, a woman who's learning to ejaculate might not even feel pleasure, but then she combines it with orgasm. But my whole body, and then I burst into tears, and it was like a release of energy. My whole body started to wake up. And why I talk about this is because the precursor, I think, for women to be able to have these full awakenings is to be able to awaken their sexual energy, their sexual power. Because um, what I've discovered is that for a woman, power and pleasure are synonymous. So the moment that I aligned with the depth of my pleasure, I immediately aligned with the depth of my purpose in a way that I didn't doubt myself anymore. I didn't question my purpose. I knew exactly in a sort of a unilateral, completely... Um, congruous way that I knew what I was meant to be doing and it was sort of an outpouring of an overflow of me it wasn't something that I had to think about it was a very different way to like it was a so more of a birthing than a thinking so I was experiencing what it is to be creative but out of my femininity which for me I never experienced before so that was incredible so two months later 
I had made an appointment to actually work with a healer and Casper didn't want me to, but something had triggered me and I realized I had a lot of pain still. And so I made an appointment with this guy and I had Casper in the room and he's a tantric healer who does energy orgasm work and he didn't touch my genitals. I was on a massage table and Casper was in the room and for three hours I did breath work, intense like breath work with sound. And at the end I was pretty was more of an exorcism than an orgasmic kind of experience. I was pretty disappointed. And he sat by my side, I was lying next to him, and he moved his head like sideways, and I felt a wave of bliss go through my frontal cortex. And I was like, holy shit, how's that even possible? And then I didn't say anything out loud. He moved his head the other way, and I felt the bliss whoosh through my brain the other in the same direction he was moving his head. And I thought, this is not possible. And I, so I said, well, what was that? He said your head is the only part of you that is undefended enough that I can actually penetrate. And he wasn't even touching me. So I started to understand the dynamic of what is the power of masculine penetration? It has nothing to do with their genitals. It's like literally focused intent and presence. That's how powerful a man is, that he can literally penetrate with his gaze. It's incredible. I'd never had that experience. So then Casper, who'd been watching him kind of move energy, and he said to me in the beginning of the session, he said, you're cut off, like your lower back, that's where your energy is completely blocked. And I had had a history of, I had been sexually abused when I was a young child, and uh, I'm sure that even if women have not been sexually abused, the messages that we get around our bodies and our sexuality, we shut down very easily because um, we're bombarded with messages about it's not okay to to be to feel good about being kind of sexually you know whatever um so he took over and that's when i started to have this um, this awakening but he started to move his hand above my body and i felt this wave ignite in my body where my body started to move me and my body started to breathe me and then it didn't matter where he touched me whether it was like above my pubic bone like around my belly button and and on my throat energy would pour in my body. I could feel it pouring in from his fingers and igniting orgasm from every single point of contact. And this went on for hours and hours and hours. And by the time we kissed, which was, I don't know how many hours into him just playing with my body, I was saturated. I mean, I was, it was probably the most spiritual experience I've ever had in my life because orgasm, love, bliss, ecstasy were all synonymous. And it didn't matter if he kissed me, my mouth exploded in orgasm. It didn't matter if he touched my chakra points, which I thought were hocus pocus with his fingers or his penis erect, non-erect, didn't make any difference. The chakras would explode. I don't know if you've ever studied Kabbalah, but he was like spontaneously touching the sephirot points. They were exploding in orgasm. If I touched my tongue to the roof of my mouth, my head would explode in orgasm. I mean, thousands of orgasms. It just, for a whole week, I was in this state. <laughs> I was like, I'm not the same person. I can promise you that. And that's what it took to make me feel be beautiful. And after it was all over, was Casper like, okay, uh, could you help me get my multiples in? Well, I'll tell you, so. this is what's so interesting about this journey is I thought this journey would be as significant for him as it was for me, but it wasn't because men are different. So a man derives pleasure from the 
deeper he's aligned with his purpose but he's not pleasure driven is what I've discovered the same way women are so Casper did subsequently learn how to have multiple orgasms but it didn't radically transform him the way that I was and I think it could be because men are sexually activated you guys haven't forgotten how to orgasm you haven't forgotten how to ejaculate but if you look at the statistics 40% of the women in this country according to the National Institute of Health are suffering from female sexual dysfunction so that's and that's sort of I think that it's more than that more than 40% that are shut down because I don't know how many women have experienced what I've experienced and if I say well that's the full potential of what a female body is capable of I don't know what the statistics would be but part of the thing that I want to prove is that there is really no such thing as female sexual dysfunction it's just ignorance that we just don't know what the instrument is designed for and we just don't have enough good maps to take us there why do you think the instrument is designed for that because I think the instrument is an evolutionary tool and I think orgasm is a catalyst for evolution and for expanding into deeper love and I think women are here to be an expression of this overflow of love I think that would transform the planet if every woman was living like that what I'm confused about is that you finally reach this wonderful stage with your husband after so many years where it's at the highest level it's ever been and the relationship falls apart <laughs> i know it's so ironic isn't it i thought it was i thought that once we had experienced that considering everything we'd been through which was a lot of shit i mean seriously our marriages had definitely gone through its ups and downs over 17 years um i thought that we would be bonded for life it never occurred to me is that but the reality is once you open yourself to this expanded life force I had, it's like pulling the plug on a, you know, on a dam because it took me. In more ways than in one. In way more ways than one. It, so I thought I could maintain the status quo and be this bigger version of myself, but I couldn't. Everything that didn't actually align with where I was supposed to go and what served my highest good and what served their highest good got ripped away. And I didn't want to lose my marriage, but it had to go because it wasn't serving either one of us anymore and no amount of you know um like euphoric experiences is going to save something that's outlived its purpose and at first i was thinking that it, i would be a failure if the marriage failed but the truth is everything has a beginning middle and end and and to recognize that something is complete is really empowering and I, it's not one of my greatest strengths because I don't like letting go <laughs> so I struggled with that you have the choice to not have the spiritual and sexual awakening and keep your marriage or you have a choice to have the spiritual and sexual awakening and lose your marriage looking back on things which one would you choose well to be true to myself and why I'm here on the planet is to evolve myself to be the best person that I can be to realize my greatest potential and it's extremely painful to hold yourself back to try and conform to something that you think you should you know um, and women don't like to upset the apple cart women tend to dumb themselves down 
condition, you know, sacrifice a lot in order to maintain the status quo, to maintain the family, to do what's right. But in the end, I think we get sick. I really do. Like there's a price to pay for um, limiting oneself. And the intentions may be good, you know, it's 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 well intended to want to to keep a marriage functioning or to, for the kids because you I love him, you know, but the truth is, is I had to be willing to let go of everything in order to claim more of myself, and that would be my message, and that would be my choice over and over again. And I, when people said, well, why did the marriage end? I go because I wasn't the woman he married. I truly I became this kind of like not obsessive but very passionate person about spreading this message and that's not what he signed up for so i don't blame him why is it that so many women who are traumatized end up being so free and so loving and so open i don't have an answer for you and i don't know if that's necessarily the truth because i was very shut down and yes i was loving but i definitely was caring sort of there was a part of me that was identified as being a victim that I couldn't divest myself of and it wasn't until that I did the more visceral like sexual work that that victim programming was gone when you're doing this stuff and you got teenage girls do they say to your mom I'm thinking of trying this technique will you help me through with well I have um, girls who are 25 20 15 and 13 and they all respond very differently to what I'm doing with my life right now the the younger ones the youngest who's 13 I explained to her what this journey is about and she understands it's about love so she's not as horrified the 15 year old is horrified she's like mom you are the princess of sex literally <laughs> and it's not a compliment <laughs> she's like isn't there anything else you could do with your life she's she said you are so embarrassing to me and the older ones um, have watched some of the videos because I filmed a whole advanced sexual curriculum and so they're actually interested and do talk to me more about what's going on with them so my stepdaughter is more open with me than any of my biological girls funnily enough so maybe she doesn't feel kind of the, the weirdness of mom as much Somebody said this to me one time. A woman said this. She said, normally the average woman has 10 fuck you years. Those are the years where it doesn't matter. Every woman's different. It could be 18 to 28. It could be 28 to 38. It could be 35 to 45. It could be 40 to 50, whatever it is. But those are the years when you feel the most confident, the most beautiful in yourself. And it doesn't matter what a guy says to you, does to you, what's happening in the relationship you could give a fuck it's like fuck you 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 and you i'm okay i'll be okay without you and then there's this point in time towards the end of those fuck you 10 years where the woman's like i gotta lock something up do you disagree with that or agree with that well i've never heard of that theory before but i kind of love the concept of these 10 fuck you years um so i'm gonna be thinking about that but i definitely uh, I think one of the reasons why I held on to my marriage for so long is because I would hear these horror stories of women who were middle-aged who couldn't get arrested. And the idea of going back out in the dating pool in my mid-50s just felt like hell to me. So, I mean, there is this kind of, you know, belief that once you've hit a certain age that you might as well be put out to pasture because no one's no man is going to be attracted to you so you get 
the divorce, which is painful. Yes. So how did you choose the person that you decided to go out with on the first date post-marriage? Okay, number one, um, I wasn't smooth at all because I, when I got married, there was no such thing as texting. So I'm like a dating dinosaur. <laughs> and the first, well, I never look for men. I mean, either they find me or I go home alone and I'm very happy by myself. And I think if I can relate with the fuck you years, it has to do with you've reached the place where you actually enjoy spending time with yourself. I think that's the key. So that, yeah, if you meet a great guy, it's icing on the cake, but it's not like this desperate you know lunge for somebody to complete me and so maybe i am in the fuck you phase because i don't care and that's very freeing for me so the first guy i went on a date with actually picked me up thanks to my 25 year old daughter who was 23 then i think or 24 was it oh my god it was just a year ago and i'm very shy i didn't want to talk to any strange men so she basically <laughs> We were sitting at this counter in this restaurant in Venice, and she initiated conversation with these two guys, and I was so pissed, and I just wanted to have a quiet lunch with her. At the end of the lunch, the guy asked me for my number, and basically my, my daughter had engineered the whole thing, so I had nothing to do with it, and he asked me out for dinner, and I'm sitting across from him having dinner, and I'm going, I can't believe this is the first time I've had dinner with a man <laughs> 18 years <laughs> he must have thought I was such a loser <laughs> because I was so transparent about everything because I was in shock and he kissed me and I literally said you got to stop for a second I'm hyperventilating I'm not breathing properly <laughs> I was so unused to it <laughs> and he got worried I mean, he's like my god you're like you're 16 years old I'm like I know I feel like it <laughs> hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water, 
And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back. Take me back to growing up, your family atmosphere, your brothers, your sisters, or your mom and dad. And what was it like growing up having anything you wanted in the world and knowing that you had the financial security that your peers didn't have? Well, my dad may have been wealthy, but I definitely didn't feel like... I mean, he was a Jewish dad. He was not super generous. He had, a, he had a great lifestyle, which we, you know, we my parents were divorced when I was very young, so we'd see him on vacations. He would take us to great places. And he taught us how to ski and to play tennis and to swim. So we had, you know, a great time with him. But I never felt... In retrospect, yeah, I had a privileged upbringing, but I didn't necessarily feel particularly privileged. Um, we went, my mom and my sister and I went to live in England when they were divorced, and I grew up around a lot of royalty because they were my mother's cousins. My mom's second cousin is Prince Charles. So, and then at Diana's, um, Princess Diana's wedding, she took me as her date to the ball at Buckingham Palace, and I'd been dating Prince Andrew at the time, who is my second cousin, which is a little twisted. So that, that, that night, he, he did sort of a casual proposal and said, well, would you be interested in marrying someone like me? And um, the answer is no. I had no interest in marrying anybody <laughs> remotely connected to the royal family, because that life felt boring to me but my mom had been engaged to an actor called Richard Burton when I was 13 and he used to take me on his set and used to fly us in private planes which my dad didn't fly us in first class which my dad didn't expose me to Hollywood royalty and that I thought was extremely fun and I think that's why I became an actress because I was completely fascinated by who he was and he was probably the only male authority figure in my life who treated me like an equal and he spent a lot of time with me. Here's a weird question, because he was such mm -hmm. a womanizer. Do you look back and think, was he just showing me around, or was he attracted to me? No, I never got that vibe from him. And I did get that vibe from, sadly, other people around when I was that age, other men, but never from him. He was never inappropriate. I mean, literally, he and I would sit for six hours and invent crossword puzzles, like six-foot crossword. We would invent the, the questions and the answers and put it all down. I mean, hours and hours together. And he taught me how to drive at 13, but I was tiny, so it was in his house in Switzerland. He used to prop me up on pillows um, in his Mercedes and have me drive. Then he taught me how to gamble, and he'd bring me to the gambling casinos and hide me behind screens so I would be allowed in and take my bets. And he was the most fun person I'd ever spent time with in my life, ever. Who was he married to during the time? Well, he was engaged to my mom, so it was between Elizabeth. But So after his first marriage with Elizabeth Taylor, 
I think, between, because I first met her when I was six years old because my mom and dad were friends with Richard and Elizabeth, and I remember visiting them at their house in Switzerland, in Gstaad. That must have been a chilly Thanksgiving at the Elizabeth Taylor house. Well, let me tell you what happened, because many years later, once I moved out to L.A., I was at some party with her, uh, and she said, send your mom my love. There was a time when I hated her, but I don't anymore. (laughs) What's the difference between the way the set was when you walked on with Richard Burden and Elizabeth Taylor versus some of the sets that you walked on more recently? Okay, so this is the thing. Because I wasn't on the inside as a teenager, it's hard for me to answer that question because I was more of an observer. But the one experience that I had with him is the last time I saw him when my mom wasn't with him anymore. He, I was 16. I was in high school at that point. And he was on Broadway starring in Equus. And he invited me to the play. And the way that they organized the, the stage was they had bleachers and the audience also sat on those bleachers on the stage. And at the end, when he was taking his curtain call, he came over and got me, took me by the hand and had me take curtain calls with him. So that is the coolest memory ever, because just a few years later, I was four years later, I was out already in Hollywood. You said that you were abused as a child. Did you know what was going on at the time? And did you feel comfortable telling your siblings or your mom or your dad? It was very confusing. I was very small and I didn't share with anybody. How young were you? Four. And then dealt with a similar situation when I was 13. Um, So there was a lot of kind of confusing messages about what was appropriate behavior and what wasn't, especially considering it was sort of family. Um, That was even more confusing. And I mean, this is the thing, is it's epidemic and it's cross-cultural and it's like um, sexual abuse knows no demographic. It's... I think it's, they say one in four girls, I think by the time they've reached the age of 18 have been molested. I mean, this is a huge, huge proportion of the population. Why wouldn't you say anything to the people that were closest to you in your life? Because I instinctively knew that it wasn't okay to say anything. And um, there's this kind of complicit thing that happens with victim and perpetrator where you just I knew there was there was no one really I could tell 10 years ago when I'm with you and your family's there and there's young kids one of them's four and the other one's six and let's God forbid say that one of them was experiencing the same thing that you were experiencing wouldn't you want her to come to you and say, Mommy, uh, I just want to let you know this, 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 and this is happening? Yeah. Of course, but it's a different generation. And I come from a generation that... um, It wasn't okay to talk about stuff like that. Definitely the way I was brought up, and it was not okay. Like, you just, you didn't talk about it. I came out with it, and I got slammed by my family. How long ago did you come out with it? In 1992. 
why did you decide to talk about it then? Because I had been through rehab and I had had and the memories came back. Did everyone in your family slam you or did somebody support you? No, I didn't get any support. Have you resolved those conflicts? Yeah, of course. Because I also think that sexual abuse is generational. I think that it takes one person to kind of put an end to the cycle of abuse. And that person is not always popular as a whistleblower. But the only reason that a parent couldn't like be there for a child is if that parent had similar wounding. Because where we don't deal with our issues, we do pass them down. I really believe that. And as a parent, I see that loud and clear. I better clean up my mess because I don't want my kids having to live it out. What do you notice that you've passed down to your children that you wish you hadn't? <laughs> I guess some of the negative self-talk that they might indulge in, I can see as a result of the way that I probably treated myself, that I was hard on myself, that I was critical of myself, that I can see how they do that and how critical they are of their bodies too. Not all of them, but I can see that. Um, and some of their issues around addiction with food, I can see that I probably contributed to that. I'm sorry. You experienced that when you were a teenager as well. What, the struggle with an eating disorder? Yeah, I did. But I was very open with my kids very open because I didn't want them I mean in the 12-step program they say you're only as sick as your secret so I've been very honest about my struggle with my children in the hopes that maybe they won't have to go through the same str and to a certain degree it has helped none of them are bulimic so and they can laugh at me about it which is pretty healthy <laughs> from the very beginning as the kids were growing up were you thinking to yourself shit that one has the gene I'm gonna have to look more closely at that one Complex. exactly I scan my kids and I call it the ism I'm looking for the ism and <laughs> I see it you're obviously being flown around by Richard Burton when you're a teenager on the set with him was that the first moment you said to yourself I gotta be in this business or did it happen before you ever met Richard Burton what's weird is I think I wanted to act even when I was little before I met him but I think it really solidified it once I had been in the in the working environment itself do you ever say to him, I really want to act. Is there some like little role? Can I do something? It, we were on, on a ski vacation with him. And I remember telling him that I wanted to act. And so he had my sister and I, she's a year younger than me, do um, an exercise where we were sitting in a restaurant. He had us walk down the hall and come and sit down at the table. And we did. And he said, you're too shy. <laughs> <laughs> did he say your sister was too shy? Too? No. <laughs> I was so bummed. <laughs> but you know it's interesting you talk about ism because he was an alcoholic and so my mom I watched her struggle trying to control like you know a perfect Al-Anon codependent trying to control his drinking and you just you cannot did he know he was an alcoholic oh yeah he did and I remember thinking at 13 I wonder if it's possible to be a great artist and not be consumed by your darkness what's the answer I'm not sure still no i think it is possible i think so too take us through when your first big break happened in the business to where you actually said to yourself i never want to do anything ever again 
No, that, I knew that already because I was already um, studying acting in New York and I had deferred from Harvard for a year in order to start that process. And then the deans at Harvard wouldn't let me commute, which is why I transferred to Columbia. But I remember I had gone on a few auditions and then I got the royal romance of Charles and Diana and my mom was horrified because I was going to be mimicking a family member. So she calls Charles and she says, you know, Catherine's been hired to do this job to play Princess Diana and I just recently been at their ball. <laughs> and he said, look, they're going to make the movie anyway. At least she can bring dignity to the role. But I did get nasty letters from other kings of other countries condemning me for doing this because it's not, it was frowned upon back then. You know, I remember trying to explain to my grandmother who was really out there um, what it meant to be an actress. I mean, it's like borderline prostitution for that generation. <laughs> my grandmother was, you know, Princess Olga, who was the daughter of the Grand Duchess of Russia, the Romanovs, and, you know, Grand Dukes had affairs with ballerinas. That was about it. You know, the, you, they were not seen. I mean, it was a low-class business acting. One of the things in my life that was unforgettable was Dynasty. Take our audience through uh, somebody who never really did television series per se, yet you go through the auditioning process. How did you prepare yourself? What happened? Okay, so the deal was is that I had recently been engaged to a Spaniard and I had just come back to New York because I'd chosen acting over being married to him. And so um, this actor called George Hamilton flew me out to L.A. and he introduced me to Aaron Spelling. You know you're in a <laughs> fucked up town in Hollywood <laughs> when a guy is famous for a tan. Uh, that's George Hamilton. But he introduced me to Aaron Spelling and I went in to meet Aaron, this tiny little guy with a pipe in this huge office. And he said, you have... He pinched my cheek. He said, you have the greatest windows in the business, which I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I'm going to make you a star. And I thought, this is the most cliche thing I have ever come across in my life. I cannot believe I was 22 years old. I've never, I can't believe that I've come to Hollywood and I'm hearing these words. This is a joke, right? But sure enough, he started testing me for different shows before Dynasty. He did me for two shows before Dynasty. One, I forgot. The <laughs> second one was one with Sherry Belafonte and another actress. It was the Charlie's Angels kind of show, but it was, we were undercover detectives posing as um, aerobic teachers, but I'd never done aerobics. So I quickly ran to the Jane Fonda studio and hired somebody in private to come to my apartment the night before to train me in aerobics. So by the time I showed up, for the audition I couldn't walk <laughs> I was so I'd never exercised in my life I couldn't I couldn't move and so obviously I did not get that one thank god because I got the dynasty one I remember for the dynasty test there wasn't there wasn't anybody else that I in a room it was a full on test like full make hair test so I was brought up to the dynasty hairdressers and they did my hair and makeup and I had to wear a teddy for this test, which was a little awkward. For those people who are living in an igloo, why don't you tell them what a teddy okay. is? A teddy is not a stuffed animal. It is a very um, short article of intimate clothing that looks like shorts and a sort of a top, but it's all in one. Are you wearing six pairs of underwear under the teddy? Or <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe that's why I got the role. I don't remember. <laughs>
Did you ever figure out what he meant by, hey, with those windows? Eyes. I needed an interpreter for Hollywood speak. He meant eyes. How far into Dynasty were you like, holy shit, what is going on here? I can't even walk down the street. Okay, so my first exposure to paparazzi was with Richard Burton. Um, Because I remember flying around Italy with him and being accosted by paparazzi. So that was my first. So I'd kind of had a taste of it when I was a little girl. But what's extraordinary about Dynasty that people don't realize now is that there were only three networks back then. So our viewing audience was 100 million people globally a week. There's nothing like that today. It's ridiculous. 100 million people. But I also remember that the work schedule was pretty intense. There wasn't much time to do much else. I got up at 6 in the morning and I finished. I wrapped at 9, 10 p.m. at night. And that was week in and week out. And it was 29 episodes a season. So it was a lot of work. I remember I had a meeting with an agent at CAA. And they represented Aaron Spelling. And they said Aaron Spelling never would mail the commission checks to the agency. He preferred to bring them in personally. And there would be a group email that went to everybody at CAA when he was coming into the garage, when he was coming to the door, and everybody was instructed to leave their offices. And in the old CAA building on Wilshire and Santa Monica, there were these railings on all the floors, and all the people, all the agents, all the assistants would come around in this circular thing above the lobby, and he would come up in the elevator from the lobby, and when the doors opened, everybody would give him a standing ovation when he walked in the door. And that was the only person that they ever did that for. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. You just tell me a little story. It could be a sentence. It could be one word. Robert Evans, who you were married to for, I think, eight days. Seven. It's very biblical. (laughs) And on the seventh day, I said, I'm complete with this experience. (laughs) And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, you've got, you spent seven wonderful days with me. That's all you get. (laughs) What was it about him that made you want to run? I can't say until he dies. (laughs) <laughs> That's the only way he will 
giving me my annulment because when I married Casper, he called me to tell me I was still married to him and I didn't realize. What was the age difference between you and Robert? Lots. 30? Yeah, probably. Like 32. It was a momentary... My therapist at the time said it was a very creative way to get out of an, my other relationship that was not a good relationship that I just could not end. I told you I have problems with ending, so it causes me to do it. You know, problem with that ending. Seven days. Get the fuck out of my life. <laughs> Conan O'Brien. Oh, he has spoken about me only because of our proximity in the Harvard yearbook. John Forsyth. Oh, he was a sweetheart. I have only fond memories of John. He was a consummate professional. Judd Nelson. Judd, I bumped into recently at some dinner, and he and I were in high school together. He was in the grade above me, and I was dating his roommate at the time. Joan Collins. She's with me because I hadn't had a lot of experience. I met her because George Hamilton was a very good friends with her, and so he used to invite her onto his boat so that she could rehearse with me before I started filming. And she was extremely um, generous with her time with me, considering I played her daughter, but she definitely went out of her way to make me feel comfortable on set. Elvis Presley, sort of. Oh, a fake one that I got married by Fat Elvis? Yes, that's true. Yeah, Casper and I flew to Vegas to get married at the Graceland Chapel because he'd always had a dream about getting married by Elvis, except I got the giggles being walked down the aisle by Fat Elvis, and I could not stop laughing. And when we were about to take our vows, he's like, Catherine, please stop laughing. This is the serious part, and I couldn't <laughs> stop. Oh, but this is the freakiest thing. So shortly after, we're in Toronto... He's filming there, and we're watching an Elvis Presley movie, literally a month after we got married. And Elvis Presley says, his dialogue is something about being the, he said, well, I'm the king of Yugoslavia. Now, why that's weird is because of my family history that my grandpa was the prince regent of Yugoslavia. And so it felt like a, that I was getting a message from my grandpa through Elvis Presley. Heather Locklear. You know... I don't remember her that well because she was being, when she wasn't working on Dynasty, she was working on TJ Hooker, and I've never seen anyone with a work ethic like that. She was a machine. I mean, I don't know how you do two one-hour series back, like, on the same day. I've never seen anyone with a work ethic like that. And that she'd get away with eating junk food all the time. I was super jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Deepak... Chopra. In the 80s, Deepak used to run the Maharishi Clinic in Fairfield, Massachusetts, I think. And so I used to fly there and do meditation programs with him. And he was the one who introduced me to transcendental meditation. He's also the first person in 1986 who asked me if I thought I had been sexually abused. And by back then, I didn't remember. And I said, I don't think so. So he could see that there was something like a little bit off about me. Prince Charles. Well, I think my mom had high hopes that I would be a a suitable candidate because I was like his dinner date when I was 16. I just behaved very badly. I remember him asking me if I knew anything about my ancestry because I have a pretty trippy lineage. And I was like, no, I can't be bothered with any of them. They're all dead. So that didn't go over very well. <laughs> 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 and then... 
I remember f- inciting him in a food fight to throw giant Dublin prawns at the rest of the guests. I was really badly behaved. And how old was he? Well, way older than me. I mean, I was 16. Were you attracted to him? I don't think so. I've never been attracted to a royal person. Not even the Prince Andrew? Not enough to marry him. Do you have to be attracted to someone to marry him? Definitely. Well, I mean, I think I'd prefer... <laughs> John Kerry. Oh, um, he was a friend who m- I think may have been interested in dating me, but it didn't, nothing happened. Princess Diana. Uh, the only time I met her was at the ball, um, around her wedding, like it was the, and Charles asked me if I'd ever met her and I said no, so he took me by the hand and he went. He brought me to her. She was the, in Buckingham Palace. There were about three three rooms, separate rooms with different dance music, and so one was more classical, one was more pop. And she was in the pop room, and I just remember there was like a, a sparkly disco ball hanging in the middle of the room, and she was dressed. She was tall, very elegant, dressed in this sparkly long clingy dress, and it was probably the first royal that I'd ever seen dressed glamorously, because their t- taste was horrific, and she was very. Um, demure and not what I expected as the happy bride like I felt already my instinct was there's something more that lurks beneath that I don't there's some dynamic going on that she didn't seem to be that happy so who knows what was going on right then maybe she just discovered Camilla was in the picture and would remain in the picture who knows you know who knows she was exactly my age too infidelity I um swore that I would leave anyone who cheated on me and whenever I do that I end it ends up being my next challenge in life <laughs> because I was eight months pregnant when I found out with our first child and even though we had a seven month separation that I requested I don't think I ever really trusted him ever again I don't did I um stay with him because I was still in love with him? Yes. Did I do everything that I possibly could to try and heal from it? Yes. And I think I must have healed to a vast degree to be able to have had those intimate experience with him subsequently. But um, if, I had, if I had been healthier in myself when I had found out I think I would have dealt with it differently. I made it about me back then. I made it about me not being beautiful enough, desirable enough, lovable enough, all those things. And if I had realized that it had nothing to do with me, this was his struggle. But because I took on the struggle, it made it harder for me to get over the struggle, if that makes any sense. I personalized it. I know it's, I mean, it's huge. I mean, what a lesson to be able to depersonalize something like that. But if I have reached the place now that I can, that I can really recognize it as somebody else's struggle and not take it on. I mean, that's maturity. I mean, so if that was the lesson that I learned through that incredibly painful ordeal, then it was a a lesson well-earned. And I'm glad that I went through it to become the person that I am today. And also to realize that when I did a relationship inventory on myself, it wasn't really him who was the problem. It was me that was attracted to somebody who was going to cheat on me. And that I had to look and become honest with myself and realize that was my pattern. 
that I was perpetually attracted to people who cheated on me. And so whether it was because of growing up with an alcoholic father, you know, whatever the dynamic is that we, that persists until you unravel it, that was my cross to bear. So I can blame them all I want, but it's really not, I, it's really not about blaming anybody. It's about me growing painfully. <laughs> Did you ever come close to cheating in the relationship? No, no. There was one time when one man I was extremely attracted to, extremely. It was so bad, literally I couldn't, it felt like he was underneath my skin, fire. And I said to him quite clearly, if the circumstances were different and we weren't married, it would be a different story. But I, no, I think maybe because I had been cheated on, I never wanted to incur that pain on somebody else. And also for me, there's a part of me that's very old fashioned. I'm married, it's a, it's a sacred covenant. I'm, you know, I'm not going to mess with that. There was something in me. I literally physically couldn't, I couldn't cross that threshold. I couldn't do it. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment. See, this is the thing. It's proudest moment in show business. I don't know if I've ever felt completely confident in myself in show business. Like I've maybe never felt like an insider, never... Yeah, I, f I think that I would only be proud if I had reached the level that Meryl Streep had reached. That That's my kind of... And because I didn't, I never felt completely fulfilled, completely proud, completely anything. I mean, to the point that I was able to make a living for decades is phenomenal compared to... I never had to waitress or anything like that. So kudos to me. But in terms of feeling talented, nah, iffy. <laughs> <laughs> you were one of the biggest stars of a generation you don't host saturday night live when you're a nobody but i okay thanks <laughs> <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level the biggest disappointment in show business for me is the way that I was sometimes treated by my male co-stars, that they felt that, that because we were working together that that gave them free reign to have an affair. And that when I would say no uh, or, you know, or rebuke them in any way, that the, the tension on set was just unbearable, that there was, you know, that I've been punished for basically rebuking co-stars for not having sex with me. And I think that's appalling, actually. That's probably my biggest... I mean, there again, recreating the sexual abuse on, in my career. And that's happened to me a lot. And it's also happened with me with very, very famous producers and directors offering me roles in exchange for sexual favors. And I've never said yes. And it sort of left a sort of a sad residue that that's, that actually happens. Take me through the dialogue of what that sounds like. Okay. I'll give you two different circumstances. Um, one was a producer who said that if I gave him a blowjob, he would give me this lead in this movie, just as he had done to this other very famous actress in this, and I knew the movie that she was in. It was as clear, it was as simple as that. And I laughed it off because we were friends. And I said, oh, don't be silly. You know, but inside I was like, oh, fuck. And then this other situation, I was in Switzerland at this man's house. 
uh, I had already auditioned for him in LA and we were discussing me being the lead in his film and he said well what I do with my actresses is before we start working we go away. and he was married his wife was roaming around the house I go away with my lead actresses and um, on a weekend together and then we get to get to know each other and again this I mean he was an icon this man somebody that I'd grown up like idolizing and you fly halfway around the world and how do you respond to that you go home <laughs> did you ever get a role when you said no no <laughs> never ever last question you've been a producer you've been an actress in your case you had the access early on but if you just put that aside and just think to yourself of all the young people out there trying to get to the next level, trying to figure out how to find themselves, what advice would you give to them? I would say um, learn, from your, learn from experience and then learn how to apply that experience into your art. Because I think great artists know how to translate painful experiences in their lives into great artistry and that then provides the audience with a level of catharsis that's very very potent um, and healing and I also think that if you're drawn to being a performer to really take it don't take it lightly because there's a responsibility that goes with that and um, that to a certain degree like you're offered a platform don't be superficial about it. Like, really learn, really kind of learn to value what, first of all, discover your unique voice and then how to offer that voice to the world in, in a constructive, useful way. Catherine Oxenberg, this has been so amazing. I've had such a great time. Barry, thank you so much. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Okay, landing on James Franklin from Plano, Texas. Congratulations, James. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Prisoner X. Four-star review on August 7th, 2013, titled Great 
simply great. The review reads, This is an excellent glimpse at the wizards behind the screens that enthrall us. Interesting, engaging, and above all, affirming. Love it. Wow, thank you so much, Prisoner X. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. And as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.